Weekend Mornings with Glenn Van Zutphen. Replay from Money FM 89.3. International News Review. Good morning, Steve. Welcome. Good morning. You know, and I'd rather be dreary in Singapore than dreary in Washington, D.C. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of dreariness to go around uh, in D.C. these days. But yes, you're right. It's not quite as cold and chill. This time of year in D.C. can be really nasty if the rain starts and it's not snowing. Yeah, well, uh, it's, it's nasty year round now, so especially yeah, right well, yeah, now. The mood, especially. especially. December, yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's go across the Atlantic and talk about um, the U.K. Uh, Boris Johnson's uh, government won a huge vote of confidence the biggest vote, biggest win in 30-some years for his party. He has got to be the happiest guy around. He is. I mean, <laughs> he, he did an amazing job. And look, he was, he was helped by how good a candidate he was, and he was very much helped by how bad a candidate he was running against. Right? <laughs> I mean, you know, the opposition leader, Corbyn, was the most unpopular opposition leader in the history of polling in London, which goes back to, to 1977. So wow. I don't know how much credit you have to give credit to Boris, and you have to, you have to sure. give blame to Corbyn. It goes both ways. Yeah, and it's interesting because in, a, in an election cycle where opposition should have really had a pretty easy time based on the fact that so many people are against Brexit and against Boris and the and the potential, what they see the potential fallout would be. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn actually had to work hard to lose this election uh, from from what I could see. Well, in fact, I, you know, I read that, uh, you know, Tony Blair's seat, which is obviously the stronghold of labor, went conservative for the first time since 1932. So this was a historically bad performance by labor. And it was the conservatives taking advantage of the demographic changes in the U.K., the same as Donald Trump took advantage of the demographic changes that had occurred in the United States. Mm, interesting. Now, they've got um, – Boris has committed to getting out by the 31st of January. And what is this – what does our process look like between now and six weeks from now, the end of January? What's going hap- to happen? Well, I mean, that's what's interesting is that the markets seem to have applauded this in not necessarily that the markets are in favor of, of Brexit over Remain, but they're certainly in favor of a Brexit where you have somebody who can negotiate and knows that what he negotiates he can get through, you know, through Parliament. Mm. And so you're going to see, you know, some, you know, agreement on, on the backstop when it comes to, to Ireland. Um, it's probably be, going to be pretty much what May had negotiated. Um, but then what the real challenge is going to be is what does Brexit get replaced with? How does the U.S. and the U.K. negotiate a free trade agreement? What happens with the U.K. not having any trade agreements in place and the WTO not being able to to enforce disputes because now you, you've had the U.S. block judges coming there? So I think the markets are applauding certainty, but I think there's so much uncertainty still out there that, that this is going to be a very difficult time period for Johnson. But he does have that majority now. The EU has has they made a couple of statements and basically fairly guarded from what I could see and nothing too outrageous, but almost from my perception of it taking kind of a, well, we'll wait and see because they're not in the mood to really change any deadlines or any, you know, anything in the process. What's your take on what you've been reading or hearing about, you know, what, what the EU is going to, what their position is right now following this election victory by, by Boris Johnson's party. Well, you know, and that's the thing for, for Johnson, you know, running is easy. Governing is hard. And now he is going to have to make some tough choices. The EU um, is going to make very clear that they do not want to see this to be a precedent. So they are going to ensure that Brexit is painful enough 
for the UK, so then you don't have other countries. Hasn't it been painful enough already? <laughs> well, nothing's <laughs> happened yet, right? I mean, that's the thing. It's been, been the uncertainty. Yeah, so now, yeah. so the markets are applauding certainty, but I'm not so certain that the certainty is what the markets are going to want. You know, as you say, January 31st, or does it get delayed to March 30th, or mm. does it get delayed to June 30th? And and you know, have to see how that plays out. But 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 now we will see if Johnson can bring his party with him. Certainly with the mandate, that's why it, there is so much elation almost in mm. Brussels and in and in the UK that we're finally going to get a real decision now. Wow. Well, we'll have to wait and see. Obviously, yet again, seems like we say this every week or every couple of weeks, we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> and we've been doing this for about three years now, so two or three years. So anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll follow the story as it uh, as it comes into these, uh, the end of the year and beginning of next year. Let's move uh, forward to China-U.S. There was movement on the agreement for the trade between the two. What exactly happened? And, you know, there is some perception that Beijing kind of took it on the chin a little bit to get a deal so they could keep their economy moving forward. Uh, At least a number of analysts have said that. So what does the deal look like? Are there clear winners and losers? What's next? Well, again, if you kind of think about it, as I've said from from the beginning, Trump needed to give Xi something in this deal. It needed to be a win-win. Everything that Trump was demanding China do, like, you know, address some IPR, intellectual property rights, protections, um, buy more products, he wasn't giving anything in return. So finally, Trump gave she enough to get this what they call a phase one deal. And that's that they're not only going to not put new tariffs on, which were slated to go into effect tomorrow, Mm. but to roll back some of the existing tariffs. So that's why we got this win-win. It is a very small deal. Um, It is not going to change the structural issues that global businesses face in China. But China will do enough where it's in its own self-interest, which is get some of the existing tariffs off, protect some intellectual property that both Chinese businesses and global businesses need, and we're going to leave the tough stuff for later, probably much later. Is this big enough that the Republicans can use it as a, as a campaign or a political win for them? You know, I really don't think so. Everybody's been saying, you know, I've been reading, you know, oh, well, this is going to make the farmers happy, and now the farmers are going to come out and support Trump. The farmers were always supporting Trump. They never went away from Trump. Trump has mm. la- lost nothing. When he was inaugurated, he had an 89% approval rating amongst Republican voters. He now has a 90% approval rating amongst mm. Republican voters. So he, maybe this would have hurt him eventually had the, the farmers started to real feel, really feel the economic pain. But people have to remember – that Trump's support is not just economic. His voters like what he is doing on immigration. Mm-hmm. They like build the wall. They like that he is out there protecting their Second Amendment rights. They like it that he is out there appointing conservatives who will go to courts and, and block you know, abortion rights. Mm. And so they're not just single issue voters. They're not just tariff voters. They like what he's doing. They continue to like what he's doing. So I don't think this helps or hurts him when it comes to the general election. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, finally, the uh, Singapore government is now looking at uh, rationalizing, uh, equalizing the data protection policy standards between businesses uh, in Singapore, the POFMA, as it's called, and what, how, the way the government protects data as well. And the story is just out uh, yesterday and today uh, that they're going to, by the end of 2020, make them both kind of level. 
and even. How big of a deal is that? Well, it's it's not going to be that big a deal to businesses because really what you have now is Singapore government saying it's no longer do as I you know, do as I say, not as I do. Now the Singapore government is going to apply those same rules to themselves. I got a notice from Sing Health last year with 1.4, 1.5 million other people that my data had been breached from the Singapore government. You had 800,000 blood donors have their data breached from the Singapore government recently. So now this is just, you know, uh, this is just an example of where cybersecurity is such an issue, where People want their data protected. They want it protected from the businesses. They want it protected from government. And so now government's going to have to step up as businesses have been stepping up. But boy, businesses have a lot of work yet to do as well. Wow. Okay. We'll have to watch that. Uh, of course, everybody, you know, at the end of the day, all we want is for our stuff not to be stolen or leaked. <laughs> Steve Oaken, thanks so much for coming in, joining me today for this edition of International News Review. Thank you. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.s or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.